Chapter 25 of The First Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter 25 The Grand Lunar. The penultimate message describes with occasionally elaborate detail the encounter between Cavour and the Grand Lunar, who is the ruler or master of the moon. Cavour seems to have sent most of it without interference, but to have been interrupted in the concluding portion. The second came after an interval of a week. The first message begins, At last I am able to resume this. It then becomes eligible for a space, and after a time resumed in mid-sentence. The missing words of the following sentence are probably the crowd. There follows quite clearly, grew ever denser as we drew near the palace of the Grand Lunar, if I may call a series of excavations a palace. Everywhere faces stared at me, blank, chitinous, gapes and masks, eyes peering over tremendous olfactory developments, eyes beneath monstrous forehead plates, and undergrowth of smaller creatures dodged and yelped, and helmet faces poised on sinuous long-jointed necks appeared craning over shoulders and beneath armpits. Keeping a welcome space about me marched a cordon of stolid, scuttle-headed guards, who had joined us on our leaving the boat in which we had come along the channels of the Central Sea. The quick-eyed artist with the little brain joined us also, and a thick bunch of lean porter insects swayed and struggled under the multitude of conveniences that were considered essential to my state. I was carried in a litter during the final stage of our journey, this litter was made of some very ductile metal that looked dark to me, meshed and woven, and with bars of paler metal, and about me as I advanced there grouped itself a long and complicated procession. In front, after the manner of heralds, marched four trumpet-faced creatures making a devastating bray, and then came squat, resolute moving ushers before and behind, and on either hand a galaxy of learned heads, a sort of animated encyclopaedia, who were Fai'u, explained, to stand about the Grand Lunar for purposes of reference. Not a thing in lunar science, not a point of view or method of thinking, that these wonderful beings did not carry in their heads. Followed guards and porters, and then Fai'u's shivering brain borne also on a litter. Then came C. Puff in a slightly less important litter. Then myself on a litter of greater elegance than any other, and surrounded by my food and drink attendants. More trumpeters came next, splitting the air with vehement outcries, and then several big brains, special correspondents one might well call them, or historiographers, charged with the task of observing and remembering every detail of this epoch-making interview. A company of attendants, bearing and dragging banners and masses of scented fungus and curious symbols, vanished in the darkness behind. The way was lined by ushers and officers in caparisons, that gleamed like steel. And beyond their line, so far as my eyes could pierce the gloom, the heads of that enormous crowd extended. I will own that I am still by no means indurated to the peculiar effect of the selenite appearance, and to find myself as it were adrift on this broad sea of excited entomology was by no means agreeable. Just for a space I had something very like what I should imagine people mean when they speak of the horrors. It had come to me before in these lunar caverns when on occasion I have found myself weaponless and with an undefended back amidst the crowd of these selenites, but never quite so vividly. 
It is, of course, as absolutely irrational a feeling as one could well have, and I hope gradually to subdue it. But just for a moment, as I swept forward into the welter of that vast crowd, it was only by gripping my litter tightly and summoning all my willpower that I succeeded in avoiding an outcry or some such manifestation. It lasted perhaps three minutes, then I had myself in hand again. We ascended the spiral of a vertical way for some time, and then passed through a series of huge halls, dome-roofed and elaborately decorated. The approach to the Grand Lunar was certainly contrived to give one a vivid impression of his greatness. Each cavern, one entered, seemed greater and more boldly arched than its predecessor. This effect of progressive size was enhanced by a thin haze of faintly phosphorescent blue incense that thickened as one advanced, and robbed even the nearer figures of clearness. I seemed to advance continually to something larger, dimmer, and less material. I must confess that all this multitude made me feel extremely shabby and unworthy. I was unshaven and unkempt. I had brought no razor. I had a coarse beard over my mouth. On earth I have always been inclined to despise any intention to my person beyond a proper care for cleanliness. But under the exceptional circumstances in which I found myself, representing as I did my planet and my kind, and depending very largely upon the attractiveness of my appearance for a proper reception, I could have given much for something a little more artistic and dignified than the husks I wore. I had been so serene in the belief that the moon was uninhabited as to overlook such precautions altogether. As it was, I was dressed in a flannel jacket, knickerbockers and golfing stockings stained with every sort of dirt the moon offered, slippers of which the left heel was wanting, and a blanket through a hole in which I thrust my head. These clothes, indeed, I still wear. Sharp bristles are anything but an improvement to my cast of features, and there was an unmended tear at the knee of my knickerbockers that showed conspicuously as I squatted in my litter. My right stocking, too, persisted in getting about my ankle. I am fully alive to the injustice my appearance did humanity, and if by any expedient I could have improvised something a little out of the way and imposing, I would have done so. But I could hit upon nothing. I did what I could with my blanket, folding it somewhat after the fashion of a toga, and for the rest I sat as upright as the swaying of my litter permitted. Imagine the largest hall you have ever been in, imperfectly lit with blue light and obscured by a grey-blue fog, surging with metallic or livid grey creatures of such a mad diversity as I have hinted. Imagine this hall to end in an open archway, beyond which is a still larger hall, and beyond this yet another and still larger one, and so on. At the end of the vista, dimly seen, a flight of steps like the steps of Araceli at Rome ascend out of sight. Higher and higher these steps appear to go as one draws nearer their base. But at last I came under a huge archway and beheld the summit of these steps, and upon it the grand lunar exalted on his throne. He was seated in what was relatively a blaze of incandescent blue, this and the darkness about him gave him an effect of floating in a blue-black void. He seemed a small self-luminous cloud at first, brooding on his sombre throne. His brain case must have measured many yards in diameter. For some reason that I cannot fathom, a number of blue searchlights radiated from behind the throne on which he sat, and immediately encircling him was a halo. 
About him, and little and indistinct in this glow, a number of body servants sustained and supported him, and overshadowed and standing in a huge semicircle beneath him were his intellectual subordinates, his remembrances, and computators, and searchers, and servants, and all the distinguished insects of the court of the moon. Still lower stood ushers and messengers, and then all down the countless steps of the throne were guards, and at the base, enormous various indistinct vanishing at last into an absolute black, a vast swaying multitude of the minor dignitaries of the moon. Their feet made a perpetual scraping whisper on the rocky floor as their limbs moved with a rustling murmur. As I entered the penultimate hall, the music rose and expanded into an imperial magnificence of sound, and the shrieks of the newsbearers died away. I entered the last and greatest hall. My procession opened out like a fan. My ushers and guards went right and left, and the three litters bearing myself and Fai'u and Si Puff marched across the shiny darkness of floor to the foot of the giant stairs. Then began a vast throbbing hum that mingled with the music. The two Selenites dismounted, but I was bidden remain seated, I imagine as a special honour. The music ceased, but not that humming, and by a simultaneous movement of 10,000 respectful heads, my attention was directed to the enhaloed supreme intelligence that hovered above me. At first, as I appeared into the radiating glow, this quintessential brain looked very much like an opaque, featureless bladder with dim, undulating ghosts of convolutions writhing visibly within. Then beneath its enormity, and just above the edge of the throne, one saw, with a start, minute elfin eyes peering out of the glow. No face, but eyes, as if they peered through holes. At first I could see no more than these two staring little eyes, and then below I distinguished the little dwarfed body and its insect-jointed limbs shriveled and white. The eyes stared down at me with a strange intensity, and the lower part of the swollen globe was wrinkled. Ineffectual-looking little hand tentacles steadied the shape on the throne. It was great. It was pitiful. One forgot the hall and the crowd. I ascended the staircase by jerks. It seemed to me that this darkly glowing brain case above us spread over me, and took more and more of the whole effect into itself as I drew nearer. The tears of attendants and helpers grouped about their master seemed to dwindle and fade into the night. I saw that shadowy attendants were busy spraying that great brain with a cooling spray, and patting and sustaining it. For my own part, I sat gripping my swaying litter and staring at the Grand Lunar, unable to turn my gaze aside. And at last, as I reached a little landing, that was separated only by ten steps or so from the supreme seat, the woven splendour of the music reached a climax and ceased, and I was left naked, as it were, in that vastness beneath the still scrutiny of the Grand Lunar's eyes. He was scrutinising the first man he had ever seen. My eyes dropped at last from his greatness to the ant figures in the blue mist about him, and then down the steps to the massed selenites still and expectant in their thousands, packed on the floor below. Once again, an unreasonable horror reached out towards me, and passed. After the pause came the salutation. I was assisted from my litter, and stood awkwardly while a number of curious and no doubt deeply symbolic gestures were vicariously performed for me by 
two slender officials. The encyclopedic galaxy of the learned that had accompanied me to the entrance of the last hall appeared two steps above me and left and right of me, in readiness for the Grand Lunar's need, and Fai'u's pale brain placed itself about halfway up to the throne in such a position as to communicate easily between us without turning his back on either the Grand Lunar or myself. Puff took up a position behind him. Dexterous ushers sidled sideways towards me, keeping a full face to the presence. I seated myself, Turkish fashion, and Fayu and Puff also knelt down above me. There came a pause. The eyes of the nearer court went from me to the Grand Lunar and came back to me, and a hissing and piping of expectation passed across the hidden multitudes below and ceased. That humming ceased. For the first and last time in my experience, the moon was silent. I became aware of a faint wheezy noise. The Grand Lunar was addressing me. It was like the rubbing of a finger upon a pane of glass. I watched him attentively for a time, and then glanced at the alert Fai'u. I felt amidst these slender beings ridiculously thick and fleshy and solid, my head all jaw and black hair. My eyes went back to the Grand Lunar. He had ceased. His attendants were busy, and his shining superficies was glistening and running with cooling spray. Fai'u meditated through an interval. He consulted C. Puff. Then he began piping his recognisable English, at first a little nervously, so that it was not very clear. Mmm, the Grand Lunar wished to say, wishes to say, he gathers you are, mmm, men, that you are a man from the planet Earth. He wishes to say that he welcomes you, welcomes you, and wishes to learn, learn, if I may use the word, the state of your world, and the reason why you came to this. He paused. I was about to reply when he resumed. He proceeded to remarks of which the drift was not very clear, though I am inclined to think they were intended to be complimentary. He told me that the earth was to the moon what the sun is to the earth, and that the Selenites desired very greatly to learn about the earth and men. He then told me, no doubt in compliment also, the relative magnitude and diameter of earth and moon, and the perpetual wonder and speculation with which the Selenites had regarded our planet. I meditated with downcast eyes, and decided to reply that men too had wondered what might lie in the moon, and had judged it dead, little recking of such magnificence as I had seen that day. The Grand Lunar, in token of recognition, caused his long blue rays to rotate in a very confusing manner, and all about the great hall ran the pipings and whisperings and rustlings of the report of what I had said. He then proceeded to put to Fai'u a number of inquiries which were easier to answer. He understood, he explained, that we lived on the surface of the earth, that our air and sea were outside the globe. The latter part, indeed, he already knew from his astronomical specialists. He was very anxious to have more detailed information of what he called this extraordinary state of affairs, for from the solidity of the earth there had always been a disposition to regard it as uninhabitable. He endeavoured first to ascertain the extremes of temperature to which we earth beings were exposed, 
and he was deeply interested by my descriptive treatment of clouds and rain. His imagination was assisted by the fact that the lunar atmosphere in the outer galleries of the night side is not infrequently very foggy. He seemed inclined to marvel that we did not find the sunlight too intense for our eyes, and was interested in my attempt to explain that the sky was tempered to a bluish colour through the refraction of the air, though I doubt if he clearly understood that. I explained how the iris of the human eyes can contract the pupil and save the delicate internal structure from the excess of sunlight, and was allowed to approach within a few feet of the presence in order that this structure might be seen. This led to a comparison of the lunar and terrestrial eyes. The former is not only excessively sensitive to such light as men can see, but it can also see heat, and every difference in temperature within the moon renders objects visible to it. The iris was quite a new organ to the Grand Lunar. For a time he amused himself by flashing his rays into my face and watching my pupils contract. As a consequence I was dazzled and blinded for some little time. But in spite of that discomfort I found something reassuring by insensible degrees in the rationality of this business of question and answer. I could shut my eyes, think of my answer and almost forget that the Grand Lunar has no face. When I had descended again to my proper place, the Grand Lunar asked how we sheltered ourselves from heat and storms, and I expounded to him the arts of building and furnishing. Here we wandered into misunderstandings and cross-purposes due largely, I must admit, to the looseness of my expressions. For a long time I had great difficulty in making him understand the nature of a house. To him and his attendant Selenites it seemed, no doubt, the most whimsical thing in the world that men should build houses when they might descend into excavations, and an additional complication was introduced by the attempt I made to explain that men had originally begun their homes in caves, and that they were now taking their railways and many establishments beneath the surface. Here I think a desire for intellectual completeness betrayed me. There was also a considerable tangle due to an equally unwise attempt on my part to explain about mines. Dismissing this topic at last in an incomplete state, the Grand Lunar inquired what we did with the interior of our globe. A tide of twittering and piping swept into the remotest corners of that great assembly when it was at last made clear that we men know absolutely nothing of the contents of the world upon which the immemorial generations of our ancestors had been evolved. Three times had I to repeat that all of the 4,000 miles of distance between the earth and its centre men knew only to the depth of a mile, and that very vaguely. I understood the Grand Lunar to ask why had I come to the moon seeing we had scarcely touched our own planet yet, but he did not trouble me at that time to proceed to an explanation, being too anxious to pursue the details of this mad inversion of all his ideas. He reverted to the question of weather, and I tried to describe the perpetually changing sky and snow and frost and hurricanes. But when the night comes, he asked, is it not cold? I told him it was colder than by day. And does not your atmosphere freeze? I told him not, that it was never cold enough for that because our nights were so short. Not even liquefy? I was about to say no, but then it occurred to me that one part at least of our atmosphere, the water vapour of it, does sometimes liquefy and form dew, and sometimes freeze and form frost, 
a process perfectly analogous to the freezing of all the external atmosphere of the moon during its longer night. I made myself clear on this point, and from that the Grand Lunar went on to speak with me of sleep. For the need of sleep that comes so regularly every twenty-four hours to all things is part also of our earthly inheritance. On the moon they rest only at rare intervals, and after exceptional exertions. Then I tried to describe to him the soft splendours of a summer night, and from that I passed to a description of those animals that prowl by night and sleep by day. I told him of lions and tigers, and here it seemed as though we had come to a deadlock. For save in their waters, there are no creatures in the moon, not absolutely domestic and subject to his will, and so it has been for immemorial years. They have monstrous water creatures, but no evil beasts, and the idea of anything strong and large existing outside in the night is very difficult for them. The record is here too broken to transcribe for the space of perhaps twenty words or more. He talked with his attendants, as I suppose, upon the strange superficiality and unreasonableness of man who lives on the mere surface of a world, a creature of waves and winds, and all the chances of space who cannot even unite to overcome the beasts that prey upon his kind, and yet who dares to invade another planet. During this aside I sat thinking, and then at his desire I told him of the different sorts of men. He searched me with questions. And for all sorts of work you have the same sort of men. But who thinks? Who governs? I gave him an outline of the democratic method. When I had done, he ordered cooling sprays upon his brow, and then requested me to repeat my explanation, conceiving something had miscarried. Do they not do different things, then? said Fayou. Some, I admitted, were thinkers, and some officials, some hunted, some were mechanics, some artists, some toilers. But all rule, I said. And have they not different shapes to fit them to their different duties? None that you can see, I said, except perhaps for clothes. Their minds perhaps differ a little, I reflected. Their minds must differ a great deal, said the Grand Lunar, or they would all want to do the same things. In order to bring myself into a closer harmony with his preconceptions, I said that his surmise was right. It was all hidden in the brain, I said, but the difference was there. Perhaps if one could see the minds and souls of men, they would be as varied and unequal as the Selenites. There were great men and small men, men who could reach out far and wide, men who could go swiftly, noisy, trumpet-minded men, and men who could remember without thinking. The record is indistinct for three words. He interrupted me to recall me to my previous statements. But you said all men rule, he pressed. To a certain extent, I said, and made, I fear, a denser fog with my explanation. He reached out to a salient fact. Do you mean, asked, that there is no grand earthly? I thought of several people, but assured him finally there was none. I explained that such autocrats and emperors as we had tried upon earth had usually ended up in drink or vice or violence and that the large and influential section of the people of the earth to which I belonged, the Anglo-Saxons, did not mean to try that sort of thing again, at which the Grand Lunar was even more amazed. But how do you keep even such wisdom as you have? 
he asked, and I explained to him the way we helped our limited, a word omitted here probably, brains, with libraries of books. I explained to him how our science was growing by the united labours of innumerable little men, and on that he made no comment save that it was evident we had mastered much in spite of our social savagery, or we could not have come to the moon. Yet the contrast was very marked. With knowledge the Selenites grew and changed. Mankind stored their knowledge about them and remained brutes, equipped. He said this. Here there is a short piece of the record indistinct. He then caused me to describe how we went about this earth of ours, and I described to him our railways and ships. For a time he could not understand that we had had the use of steam only one hundred years, but when he did, he was clearly amazed. I may mention as a singular thing that the Selenites use years to count by, just as we do on earth, though I can make nothing of their numeral system. That, however, does not matter because Fai'u understands ours. From that I went on to tell him that mankind had dwelt in cities only for nine or ten thousand years, and that we were still not united in one brotherhood, but under many different forms of government. This astonished the Grand Lunar very much when it was made clear to him. At first he thought we referred merely to administrative areas. Our states and empires are still the rawest sketches of what order will some day be, I said, and so I came to tell him, at this point a length of record that probably represents thirty or forty words is totally illegible. The Grand Lunar was greatly impressed by the folly of men in clinging to the inconvenience of diverse tongues. They want to communicate and yet not to communicate, he said, and then for a long time he questioned me closely concerning war. He was at first perplexed and incredulous. You mean to say, he asked, seeking confirmation, that you run about over the surface of your world, this world, whose riches you have scarcely begun to scrape, killing one another for beasts to eat? I told him that was perfectly correct. He asked for particulars to assist his imagination. But do not ships and your poor little cities get injured? he asked and I found the waste of property and conveniences seemed to impress him almost as much as the killing. Tell me more, said the Grand Lunar. Make me see pictures. I cannot conceive these things. And so for a space, though something loath, I told him the story of earthly war. I told him of the first orders and ceremonies of war, of warnings and ultimatums, and the marshalling and marching of troops. I gave him an idea of manoeuvres and positions in battle joined. I told him of sieges and assaults, of starvation and hardship in trenches, and of sentinels freezing in the snow. I told him of routs and surprises, and desperate last stands and faint hopes, and the pitiless pursuit of fugitives and the dead upon the field. I told, too, of the past, of invasions and massacres, of the Huns and Tartars, and the wars of Mahomet, and the caliphs, and of the crusades. And as I went on, and Fai'u translated, the Selenites cooed and murmured in a steadily intensified emotion. I told them an ironclad could fire a shot of a ton twelve miles and go through twenty feet of iron, and how we could steer torpedoes under water. I went on to describe a Maxim gun in action, and what I could imagine of the Battle of Colenso. 
The Grand Lunar was so incredulous that he interrupted the translation of what I had said in order to have my verification of my account. They particularly doubted my description of the men cheering and rejoicing as they went into battle. But surely they do not like it, translated Fayou. I assured them men of my race considered battle the most glorious experience of life, at which the whole assembly was stricken with amazement. But what good is this war? asked the Grand Lunar, sticking to his theme. Oh, as for good, said I, it thins the population. But why should there be a need? There came a pause. The cooling sprays impinged upon his brow, and then he spoke again. At this point, a series of undulations that have been apparent as a perplexing complication as far back as Cavour's description of the silence that fell before the first speaking of the Grand Lunar become confusingly predominant in the record. These undulations are evidently the result of radiations proceeding from a lunar source, and their persistent approximation to the alternating signals of Cavour is curiously suggestive of some operator deliberately seeking to mix them in with his message and render it illegible. At first they are small and regular, so that with a little care and the loss of very few words we have been able to disentangle Cavour's message. Then they become broader and larger. Then suddenly they are irregular, with an irregularity that gives the effect at last of someone scribbling through a line of writing. For a long time, nothing can be made of this madly zigzagging trace. Then, quite abruptly, the interruption ceases, leaves a few words clear, and then resumes and continues for the rest of the message, completely obliterating whatever Cavour was attempting to transmit. Why, if this is indeed a deliberate intervention, the Selenites should have preferred to let Cavour go on transmitting his message in happy ignorance of their obliteration of its record, when it was clearly quite in their power, and much more easy and convenient for them to stop his proceedings at any time, is a problem to which I can contribute nothing. The thing seems to have happened so, and that is all I can say. The last rag of his description of the Grand Lunar begins in mid-sentence interrogated me very closely upon my secret. I was able in a little while to get to an understanding with them, and at last to elucidate what has been a puzzle to me ever since I realised the vastness of their science, namely, how it is they themselves have never discovered Cavorite. I find they know of it as a theoretical substance, but they have always regarded it as a practical impossibility, because for some reason there is no helium in the moon, and helium. Across the last letters of helium slashes the resumption of that obliterating trace. Note that word secret. For on that, and that alone, I base my interpretation of the message that follows, the last message, as both Mr. Wendigee and myself now believe it to be, that he is ever likely to send us. End of chapter 25